Hi, everyone, and welcome to Millennium Live, our digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. Today, we have a special edition episode featuring Steve Robinson, former CMO of Chick-fil-A, and Anne-Marie Steven, president at Street Fight and founder and CEO of the Retail Innovation Lounge. The two discuss how technology is being integrated into marketing strategies and how Chick-fil-A was able to transition to stay ahead of the curve in this transformation. The company is well known for their A-plus customer service, and Steve shares just how this came about and stuck. I'm Anne Marie. I'm president of Street Fight, which I'm confident nobody uh, here probably knows. Street Fight is a location-based a B2B publication where we focus on connecting the physical and digital world. So we are excited to have the opportunity, not only am I president of Street Fight, but I'm also part of the uh, Millennium Alliance Advisory Board. So for me uh, to have the opportunity to sit with Steve is really quite a treat because we had the opportunity to speak last week. We talked on and on and on and on. So a 30 minute call became a, I don't know, almost 90 minute call. But you have a very long and storied career at uh, Chick-fil-A. And now you've written this book. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about the book, and we're going to unpack some of the things that that we're going to see there. Sure. Well, the name of the book is Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A. And uh, I had the privilege of being at Chick-fil-A for 35 years. And uh, I had no intention of writing a book when I retired at the end of 2015. Um, Then I discovered that the business was growing so fast because I was still on the board that within five years of me being gone, over 60% of the staff and the Chick-fil-A operators had not been there five years ago. And so they didn't know a lot of the stories of the history of the Chick-fil-A brand, the culture, the values. Uh, And I was asked, uh, why don't you write a story about it? And so the book is basically a story about my career, uh, the founder of Chick-fil-A, True Cathy, and then of course, basically a biography of the brand. It was an experience I, I never would have dreamed of having. I grew up in South Alabama. I had aspirations of working in Atlanta. I didn't know what that would look like. And I joined Chick-fil-A in 1981 uh, after eight years of professional work at Texas Instruments and at Six Flags. And I don't know what, you, what you'd like for me to share next, but maybe an important way to frame this conversation is my last interview before I joined Chick-fil-A. I was director of marketing at Six Flags over Georgia and um, I had gotten a call from the COO of Chick-fil-A, what I have an interest in helping them literally start the marketing department at Chick-fil-A. And so I figured, you know what? Um, I've worked for public companies for eight years. This is an interesting private company. I'd love to learn more. So I start the interview process. I figure, what's two or three days, right? All right, let me fast forward. It is now December 1980. And I'm sitting in the office of Truett Cathy, who's the founder and CEO, and I'm interviewing Stealth. And Chick-fil-A, I, dis- I discovered in that interview the, the, really the pillars of the culture of the business. So I look at Truett and I said, Truett, this, this has been a very long process. I have a job I really like. Could you tell me, what are you looking for in the ideal marketing candidate? And am I the guy? Because this is getting difficult. And Truett was about 60 years old at the time, and he looked at me and said, I have absolutely no idea. All I know is I don't want to do it. And I was stunned. And there was a pause. And then he said, but this I do know. I want to know that you and I can trust each other and that we can have fun together because my intent is you're never going to go anywhere else. Now, remember, I've had four different jobs in eight years. Then he said, and he had a great Southern accent, so he drew this stuff out. 
Then he said, the most important decision we make here is who we invite into the business. Well, I think that is uh, one of the famous kind of tenants or the yeah. foundation pillars yeah. is we hire for culture, right? right? Is that right. That's something exactly like... Right. Is, That's yeah. exactly right. Truett's premise was if you attract the right talent, not just skill set, but character and values, in effect, you don't train culture, you hire, you hire culture. And he was a master at it. This is a man that never went. Which is very visionary. You know, if you think about, I don't know how many technology companies or people who work with tech companies. I work, you know, you know, know a lot about Silicon Valley, spend some time there. But some of the tenants that they're putting forward uh, are exactly that. They're hiring, they're hiring the culture. They're saying, okay, well, your skills, that's good. We'll figure that out later. Or it's not necessarily a job description. It's about the person. Right. And how can you contribute to the organization? That's right. So I, he didn't offer me the job until two weeks later, but I had the privilege then of joining Chick-fil-A in January of 1981 and literally got to build the marketing department and the marketing strategy from scratch. But I knew early on I was in a different kind of organization. And in fact, you know, I talked about this within a year and a half, I was in the midst of my first major promotion for Chick-fil-A and I didn't really know any better. So there was a certain amount of aggressiveness and arrogance on my part. And we did a promotion called First and Best because suddenly McDonald's was in the marketplace. And my, my probably my greatest contribution of it, we were working with McCann, was to try to exercise a really aggressive media strategy around each of the stores. Well, the long, the short of this story, it was a coupon-based promotion, and it exceeded the budget by $2 million. Now, this is, a, this is a, at the time, a company of only about $100 million in sales. $2 million is a big, big deal. And I walked into uh, Jimmy Collins' office about four or five days into this fiasco, and I figured my career is questionable. <laughs> and I go in there to apologize. And I said, Jimmy, I want to apologize for this. I was too aggressive. I didn't know enough to make some of the recommendations I made. And I am sincerely sorry for what I've done because we're not going over a budget by $2 million. we got kitchen ladies killing themselves making all this food. I fully expected somebody to salt my front yard. He looked at me. He said, you know what? Don't worry about it. I proved it. He said, we've just invested $2 million in your education. You'll never make that mistake again. And the fallout of that promotion that played out really in the period of a year was we made a strategic decision. We will never coupon, discount, or price point Chick-fil-A ever again. Number two, we are not going to do marketing the traditional fast food way, which looked like if you looked at the traditional structure of a marketing strategy and organization of McDonald's or Burger King, et cetera, an inverted pyramid where virtually all the decisions, strategies, and money were coming out of the home office. And there was very little activation or freedom at the level of the store operator. We inverted that. We said, we're not going to do that. We built a marketing program based upon the Chick-fil-A operator from the store up their independence at the store level, and their independence as operator groups in their markets. And the third big ripple effect of that $2 million mistake, what it was, it was the last straw in a major financial crisis for Chick-fil-A in 1982. And it led the executive committee to go off-site, and Truett basically said, you got to do something about this. And we started working on how do we trim expenses, do whatever we got to do for the 83 plan to survive and during that discussion is when Dan Cathy asked the question, well, look, we may have a bigger issue. We have staff and operators who are fairly new to this business, and they're really concerned. 
they're afraid. What are we going to say to them about why are we in business? Now, I, I want you to I want you to try to understand and hear what Truett Canthy communicated to me and that young executive committee. After a lot of discussion, this was the heart of what he said. I do not want Chick-fil-A operators and staff members looking to me for their future. I see this business as a gift, the sandwich as well as the business as a gift from God. I see my responsibility to steward this gift, therefore your responsibility to steward this gift as an executive committee. And we've got to help staff and operators understand that that's what this business, that's why we exist and that's what we're about. So I want to take a pause there because there's some really important pieces that you pulled out. So one is identifying very clearly what I hear is that you had a very rooted brand purpose. And it's yes. one of the things I think that we're seeing more yes. now coming back to, or I think it's more important now than ever, given the digital revolution, right? Or the digital age, or I don't know if it's a revolution. Is it a revolution? We're, we're kind of in 20, 2019, right? So, um, but the point being, the more that, that that happens is my viewpoint is any brand, whether you're retail, restaurant, whatever business you're in, whatever vertical you're in, it is critical to know who you are and what you are about. That is what the consumer is going to identify with and also give your brand direction, you know, right. to really clearly know what that means, right? right? And right. I think, you know, what's interesting going back to even what the early mission statements were long before it was even called Chick-fil-A, there was a brand vision and a brand mission. Right. And I think adhering to that um, and staying on point with that, and we heard that last night as well, is understanding what that brand mission is and who you are and what you're about. Well, the, the, the why statement that came out of that, of that meeting was the purpose statement of Chick-fil-A, which has not changed since that meeting in 1982. Glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all that come in contact with Chick-fil-A. So you have basically three principles in there, honoring God, positive influence, but the most important aspect of it, the true it was, that it hinged on stewardship. So when you start to then look at strategies on how to build a brand, it, it led to an organization where we were not focused on transactions first. We were focused on the relationship with the operators and empowering the operators so they in turn could build relationships with the customers. And the heart of the Chick-fil-A journey was moving from just being a sandwich and a fast food restaurant where you got a, a real quick meal to an experience, a brand experience, a relational experience. Well, I think that would be, and I'm going to say the A word, but I mean, you know, when you look in the retail and brand world and consumer world, you know, you can look at any kind of, you know, digital online experience and it can be very transactional, right? When we, when we get the one day delivery or whatever those services that are provided, which is great and the convenience, very transactional. When you go into an offline experience, that's really something that can be differentiated, right? Right, right. right. So if you're looking, you know, to continue. So I, I think it's important for the audience to understand that one of the reasons we were doing marketing strategy based upon a, a traditional pyramid where the Chick-fil-A operators are at the bottom, is you have to understand the operator, the store leadership model that Truett had created. Chick-fil-A operators are not managers, and they're also not equity investors in the business. Chick-fil-A finds the locations. This is true the entire history of the business, malls, free standards, et cetera. Chick-fil-A finds the sites, they build the restaurants, they equip the restaurants, they even stock the first inventory. If you go through the process and get selected as a Chick-fil-A operator and get handed the keys, and you basically are subleasing that business and the brand from Chick-fil-A, after all of your expenses, which by the way includes your staff because the employees are not 
employees of Chick-fil-A Inc. They're employees of that independent contractor. After all their expenses, they retain half of the net profit for their personal income, and the other half goes to Chick-fil-A. So what we were sitting on in the early 80s was a model of operations, leadership operations, where the leader was highly vested in, in the success of the business. Every customer was their customer. Every team member was a reflection of them. Every customer interaction was a reflection of them. We never dreamed it would grow to that. But that deal has never changed. Well, you know, what's never fascinating changed. about that is it focuses, right? You move from, when you look at the com you know, competition, I mean, obviously that market is, is very competitive, right, yeah. in that space. So flipping the script in terms of driving the focus is not on real estate management and asset That's management, right? right? Which exactly is really, right. you know, if you look at commercial real estate or mall, you know, spend a lot of time in the REIT world, they're asset managers and now they're being, right. you know, challenged uh, as the landscape, consumer landscape changes to become consumer facing, which is a very difficult pivot because they've been real estate owners, right? Yes. So when you take that burden or that shift the focus to the customer, saying, okay, where are we going to spend our time, energy, money, and resources? Focusing on the customer, customer, customer. What I see here is also a clear, clear line to an ROI. Yes. Right? Yes. Customer at the center of the story, which we hear a lot about, drives to an ROI. Focusing in the energy and the effort to yes. that one spot and supporting all the yes. initiatives around that. Yeah, I would say, Anne-Marie, though, however, one of the major differences at Chick-fil-A is we didn't start with trying to figure out what the ROI would be when we were looking at what are we going to do in terms of some major right. brand initiative. The, the question was always, will the customers value this brand innovation? Whether it's a menu issue, whether it's hospitality, whether it's events, whether it's the, the inter interaction model we have with team members, even the customer technology interfacing we have for the customer. Will they value it to the degree that it contributes to our ultimate goal, and that is to have customers become brand ambassadors for Chick-fil-A? Because brand ambassadors come more often, tell others, and are willing to pay full price. Which, in another translation of that, to me, I hear, is influencers. That's right. Right? That's right. <laughs> that would be the equivalent in digital world, I think. So the, the ultimate ROI is, is at the back end. And I think there's a temptation in our in our environment today around analytics and data, and I'm all for that. I think there's a temptation to use data and financial analysis to try to evaluate decisions before you see the ultimate impact of how customers respond to them. And we ne we did tons of testing. Trust me, we did research, we did testing. It never failed. When we ultimately got, in got into large-scale testing and rollouts, the customer response and the customer feedback was always different and more exponential when it was actually in the restaurants and in the field than anything we could do during the innovation process. And did we make some mistakes? Did we pull some things out of the stores? Sure, not many, but we did. But ultimately, the customer was the ultimate judge of innovation at Chick-fil-A, still is. And one of the primary roles I had at Chick-fil-A was keeping the voice of the customer involved in every aspect of brand innovation. So is that really the foundation of what it is then is, is the customer it comes first? You know, yes. I hear the service of the customer. Yes. I also think too product because people love Chick-fil-A so much. They're so passionate about right. the food. And I feel like that sometimes gets lost in these conversations around brand and innovation. And I'm the first one to 
that loves innovation and AI and machine learning and robots and all of that, AR, VR, I love it. But at the same time, what's most important uh, and also creating experiences in the offline world, right? Pop-ups and right. I don't know, whatever, right. Instagrammable moments. All of those things matter, but really at the end of the day, the price of entry, the base you know, opportunity to do business with that customer is having a great product. Yes. I think that just goes without, I think sometimes it even, I'd say it goes without saying, but I think it go, gets overlooked that the quality of the product, what it is and doing a great, yes. you know, the service and all of that is something that we have to do right. now, but your minimum price of entry is a great well, product. Well, that original sandwich, which Truett, which Truett called his gift, was a high quality product. It was simple. He used to joke, if it wasn't simple, I couldn't have created it. It's just two pieces, it's just chicken between two pieces of bread, but it's high quality product. And it created a bar by which every potential menu innovation had to match. And our, our, our barometer was literally what kind of scores we get on the Chick-fil-A sandwich in our customer research. We don't want to put anything on the menu that doesn't get comparable scores, whether it's a grilled chicken sandwich or a wrap or a salad or a milkshake, whatever it is. If it doesn't add to the food value proposition at that level, it's not going on. Secondly, we didn't do in and out products, limited time offers. We didn't do those. Truth's attitude was if it's good enough to go on the menu, then it's going to stay because we don't want to, we don't want to build a following for a product and then disappoint customers. All that said, still underneath that, however, was the attitude, the menu, the food was only the first mile. And literally, we built the, the brand operational strategy into three components. The food experience was the first mile. Hospitality and service was the second mile. And then the third mile was emotionally engaging with every customer, not only in the restaurants and in the drive-thru, but even through how we marketed the business. And so these funny renegade cows was all part of creating an emotional connection with the customer just as the way we engage with you across the counter when we said, my pleasure. So that's a really great point because that is a huge strategy to deploy across, you know, so many people in so many locations and over a period of time. You know, this mm -hmm. was many years in, in, in play. So what's interesting, you know, I see and, and shouldn't, is probably familiar to people in this room, but I mean, you have, uh, you know, new brands that can go out and create everything because it's all, you know, uh, greenfield, right? right? But there's also, and you know, there's companies in this room where your legacy companies, maybe you've been around for a hundred years, maybe you've been around for 75 years, or, and you're dealing with cultures internally, people might be at the company for 20 years or 30 years, right? And your career span 30 years. So I'm interested to understand how do you navigate and move those innovations through? Because over a 30-year span, and we've seen some of those already that you've pointed out, mm -hmm. can you help us understand how you drove that cultural change? Because that's really a thematic vibe that I'm getting out of the last few presentations right. is culture, 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 right? Yeah. Culture drives innovation. Right. So the, some of the key cultural tenants were focused on stewarding the business, not just making a profit, not just driving transactions. We're focusing on stewarding the business. Well, the whole concept of stewarding is literally to create a vibrant, ongoing, sustainable idea. So in that context, innovation moves way up the list. So one of the underpinnings of the business became innovation. Well, what kind of innovation? Is it going to be driven by leadership? 
Is it going to be led by the ownership family, or is it going to be led by the customer? And early on, we decided we're going to have innovation that is customer-driven. And we put in place early in the 80s a, a succession of or an evolution of listening to the customer techniques. So the voice of the customer was all through the process of innovation. We literally had a five-step process. It didn't matter if it was a technology innovation, a menu innovation, a service innovation, or even a store design innovation. It went through the same process. Interesting. Innovation became such a priority to Chick-fil-A, the cycle time suddenly became important because we're, it's also a retail business. Mm -hmm. And the customer's interest and their, their attention span to food and their, their concern with how much time they have is, is always changing. So to shrink cycle time, we built a 100,000 square foot facility called the Hatch, where we tried to hatch new ideas. Yeah, I like yeah. it. It's appropriate. And Did you name that too? No, actually one of my team members <laughs> came up with that. I like it. It's good. And the Hatch was, I wish you could see it, it a multifunctional space, much of it flex space, had technology capability, <clears throat> uh, IR capability, a lot of customer panel rooms. It had construction for plywood and foam core construction. And that's where, <clears throat> excuse me, where we were able to innovate. We cut cycle times in more than half because we were able to innovate in that environment with customers, bringing customers in, bringing gonna, operators yeah. in. And we were able to, by the time we got to test stores, we already had something that was pretty well worked out. Because you could really shake out ideas. And, Correct. And when it's, you know, for in tech world, they like to say fail fast. I don't Correct. like the idea of fail, but the idea is test and learn, right? right. What's going to work, what isn't going to work, and not everything is a home run, as you know. And right? so we, t we and as you've experienced, to, we, we were able to do it faster in that environment. So we, yeah. we cut the average cycle time, for example, on a menu product idea from three years from start to finish to less than a year and a half. Wow. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. And then got, so you get it to market in a year yes. and a half. Right. Now, since I've left, they've added two more innovation spaces at Chick-fil-A. There are now over 200,000 200, square feet of innovation space at Chick-fil-A dedicated to menu, building design, technology, and customer service interfacing. I mean, I go, I go down there, it is mind-boggling what's going on. Now, how you do the innovation, I want to finish answering your question, yeah. is who does the work? We took a team approach where every significant innovation initiative had a team, cross-functional team, always had somebody from marketing to represent the voice of the customer. They may not be the facilitator, but there was always a marketing rep. But usually you had operation people, finance people, accounting people, technology people. And so those people drove that, that innovation process, and they were empowered with resources, the right talent, and money. They had a timeline, and they, they, one person there was accountable back to an executive committee member. And so every part of the organization was essentially represented and correct. contributing to the process. Yes. I think that's really important. And anyone I, in the organization yeah. can bring, bring an idea to the planning process to plug into that process. I think also good you had finance involved. That's always oh, good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, very important to have finance involved. It is. It is. I think that's where, I, you know, I've been talking more about it this year, 
but we should not be afraid or ashamed to say we're in the no. business to, to do business, right? To sell things. But on the other side of it is that the consumers want to buy things from us, right? Yes. They want to consume. So how do we, um, our responsibility, our stewardship in that is how do we make it easier for them? How do we make it nice for them? How do we make it engaging yeah. for them and answering all those questions, right? Delivering the product or service that they that's right. want, that's need, right. and expect from us. And I don't right? want to pick on the finance people, but I think one of the things that this this innovation processing using a team approach helped create at Chick-fil-A was a, a broad understanding of the business of what the brand's all about. What are we trying to not only sustain, but what are we trying to create for customers in the future? And the brand language integrated into the entire organization. Yeah, across the lines of and, business. And yes, I think absolutely. one of the interesting things that happened, Anne-Marie, was within, within less than 10 years, we started seeing talent that was capable of doing things and giving leadership beyond their functional slot. And we started moving people around in the business. We moved finance people into marketing. We moved, we moved operational people into marketing, op marketing people into other areas, technology people into marketing. My successor was the former CIO. Really? Well, because that says of, a lot be, too. Because of what happened in that whole innovation journey, it became clear technology had to be married in a much greater way with marketing, but so does finance, so does accounting, so does operations. So that team approach of, inter, of however, of administering a consistent process led to the growth of the brand culture. I think that is so amazing in that the first thing I hear in that is retention. Yes. If I am also on the team, I would be very excited at the possibility of being able to contribute across multiple lines and also expand my potential as an employee, right? Yes. And to contribute to the organization beyond not only where I am today, but right. see myself having possibility three years, five years, 10 years down the road. And I think that the expectation is very different for today's worker, right? Mm -hmm. And we want, they move fast and they want to be trained. That's the new generation. There's some studies that are coming out now and I've heard it even from that generation. They want to be trained, right? They want to, they want to see what's, uh, they want to learn. They want to contribute. But I think if you can show them that there's a growth path and retention will be an issue, uh, that a challenge to be addressed and doing something like this really sounds, um, to be a great success well, it, for it, the organization, yeah, the, the yeah. individual and yes. to the greater organization. Yeah. Well, people can see that they cannot, they can grow beyond the traditional functional area that they were, they were supposedly hired to be a part of, there's the opportunity to move around the organization, learn more, become generalists in the business. And that's really where you find your next generation of leaders, are these people that are that are, have an appetite for learning uh, beyond the skill set that they were originally brought to the business to provide. That's, you know, um, something that I think is that more companies could really <laughs> take, take um, some stock in, right? Because I think we also have this idea that putting people in a box and this is where you should stay and, you know, you're going to be here for three years. I've actually heard that too, that that is the expectation is that, you know, employees, LinkedIn's uh, founder actually had been talking about that, that companies will have the expectation that there'll be these limited contracts with folks and they'll stay right. for three years. And that's why your network is so valuable, right? right? 
But I think on the converse of what you're saying provides sort of that idea of movement, but also gives the business, I think we always have to bring it back to what is the value that is providing the business. And it's not just the long-term opportunity, but also it drives the stability and the future growth of a business. But it also goes back- And continuity, right? That is very, very, very hard to do if people are moving around every three three years. But this conversation right here actually goes all the way back to the beginning where we were talking about what was important to Truett Catholic. Remember one of the things he said to me is, I don't expect you to ever leave here. Right. Well, that's a paradigm. That's, that's a, parad- a pretty big That's a paradigm-busting idea. Yeah. Not only then, but it still is. Yes. But if that's one of your cultural tenets, and you don't want people leaving, you want to retain institutional knowledge, cultural understanding, because the culture becomes part of how people process decisions. Yes. If you want to have that kind of retention, well, they only have two options. They can go find new ideas, go pursue new opportunities and new ideas outside the business, or you can give it to them inside the business. And it created a higher demand for us to offer people opportunities to grow inside the business if we didn't want to lose them. So let's talk about, I'm going to make a little bit of a switch here. Let's talk about marketing specifically, right? Right. And there's two call outs for me uh, over the span of your career that I understand. And I'd love to get into that a little bit is growing the business through marketing. And then what you did, because it's also a challenge to take something, it's a fun challenge, I would imagine, and a daunting, good, fun challenge to take on a marketing department that's never existed before, right? And so everything is going to be risk-taking, new, innovative, selling it to the organization yes. that's been there much longer than you have challenges. So there's two two things. One is the, um, you know, how do you grow a brand through marketing and driving sales? So you took on an SEC sponsorship opportunity. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about how that came about and then what result it drove for you. The underlying principle of how we tried to approach marketing was two or three key things. Number one, how do we empower the operators? Remember the marketing pyramid. How do we equip and empower the operators to build the sales and the brand? And they are the primary marketing ambassadors of the business, not us at the top, them. And not only in their store and their community, but then in their market when the operator teams work together. Okay, so you've got to remember that that foundational approach on how we build the marketing plan bottom up. Every year, they still do. So the last piece at the top was the national piece. And the major principle there that we adopted is we're only going to do nationally what they, the operators cannot do for themselves. We're, we're not going to do this stuff that attempts to drive transactions at store level. We're staying out of that. We're going to remember our $2 million mistake. All right, so if, if you understand that fundamental principle, then we were well into the 90s before we were ready to even entertain much at the top. In the mid-90s, we had roughly 500 stores on the street. Over two-thirds of them were in the nine southeastern states that coincidentally represents the SEC and the ACC in athletics. And in studying our customer data, demographic data, we realized, we saw that college football fans were one of the, not one of, they were the highest indexing audience we served. It's unbelievable. 40% more likely to eat with us than any other fast food brand. Well, back in the mid Mid 90s, there was the Peach Bowl in Atlanta. Uh, they had no corporate sponsor. They just moved into the Georgia Dome. They just signed a contract with SEC and the ACC for partnerships. There's that geographical fit. And they just done a long term deal with ESPN. They had no corporate sponsor. And Diane and I are sitting in a football game, a, a Peach Bowl game in 1995, and Kentucky's playing Clemson, and there's 15,000 empty seats in the Georgia Dome. And I couldn't believe it. And I made a comment to her. I said, This is, this is low hanging fruit for a sponsor. 
She's sitting right I was just going to say, Diane, give us she's a little wave right there. Lovely. And she says, well, why don't you do it? She was right. Simple. It was simple. It was a natural fit. It was a demographic fit. It was a geographical fit. Yeah. And we could not afford to do a be a traditional advertiser. We had to figure out a way to engage with fans, not only through media, but through personal interaction. So it was an initial three-year deal for the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. Took it to the executive committee after working on the deal for almost two years. Now, this is the, the tension between operations, marketing, finance, et cetera. There's nine members on the executive committee counting through it. And we have to make a commitment, in or out. The vote is four to four. Jimmy Collins turns to Truett Cathy, says, well, Truett, you're the tiebreaker. What do you want to do? Classic guy, Truett Cathy. Sounds like a good idea to me. Let's do it. He had an intuitive sense about the... By the way, he said that to me probably a dozen times in my career about significant moves. Sounds like a good idea to me. Let's do it. Our, our journey, I got to accelerate it here. Our journey in college football is over 20 years now. It went from a single game with TV spots only in that game for three years, becoming an SEC partner, an ACC partner, a national advertiser with ESPN, eventually helping the bowl to elevate to where they were a candidate for the college football playoff, helping eventually able to negotiate a deal with the CFP and ESPN to be one of the first 14 wow. sponsors in the college football playoff. That's amazing. I think what I hear in that too, I know what I hear in and that. And it's the is only that national would, sponsorship we ever had. You know, it's very focused, right? Very focused. very focused. It goes again back to that very fundamental, basic uh, idea of knowing who you are and what you're about and the customer that you serve, So I right? have to tell you this funny little story. It's kind of like Diane saying, why don't you do it? We're only one or two years into the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, and I'm down on the field before the game because Truett's going to do the coin toss. And I, I said, Truett, I want, I, re I want to really thank you for supporting this decision. I think this is going to, this has got a bright future. Now, this is only two or three, in, two or three years into it. He looks at me and he looks at the crowd. He says, every person I see in here either is or should be a Chick-fil-A customer. And I think that's he probably proven it. itself Literally, out. Literally, he yeah. saw it. Yeah, well, people are very, I have to say, I live in New York City, and you have some locations in New York City, and I'm and originally yeah. from Chicago, so they, right. but I have to tell you, people are so passionate. I have also lived in the South, and they are passionate about this brand. In New York City, a gal just, you know, she was telling me, I, I saw the Chick-fil-A bag, and I said, oh my gosh, where did you get that? She goes, oh my gosh, it's around the corner. I mean, the way they talk about the brand is yeah. um, a very connected experience. Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure to listen and subscribe to our podcast exclusively on iTunes and SoundCloud to get the inside scoop from top execs in the world of digital transformation. Head on over to mill-all.com for more information.